we'll go ahead and start. All right, so we're going we're gonna to continue on with Statement of Faith this morning. Um, and so if you have a copy, great. If not, you can access it from the web. But we're going to be continuing to look at the doctrine of hell. And we're going to record this just so that if people need to, um, if people want to go back and listen to it, they can. All right, so going through the statement of faith, we're on point seven, and you know we're in the the section of the statement of faith that's um, it's the more sort of sober, solemn section dealing with the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, and the doctrine of whatever you want to call it here, the consequences of sin. And so, in point seven on the nature of faith, or on the uh, statement of faith. This is what it is is said. The consequences of sin, both inherited and actual, are separation from God and spiritual death, complete disinheritance as children of God, subjection to all the miseries of this life, physical death, and eternal conscious punishment of both soul and body in the lake of fire in the age to come. So why don't I pray, and then we'll dig into this again. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you that we have your holy word. Um, Lord, what a treasure. Um, what a blessing to have your perspective on all manner of things in this life, really on the big ticket items, who you are, who we are, why we are here, where we are going. And Lord, we also just recognize um, in reflecting on these words that are stated in the statement of faith that sin is a big deal. Um, sin is not some small matter to you. Um, it is something that cost the Son of God his own blood. Um, it is something, Lord, that um, has moved you to establish a place in the universe um, called outer darkness, called hell. Our Lord Jesus spoke of this as often as he did heaven. And so, Lord, we want to pay attention. We want to think through these things, think Christ's thoughts after him, um, especially now as we look in the Gospels and we look more at his teaching on this matter. Father, we pray you would renew our minds, um, that we would have a sense of the urgency of it, of the reality of it, of the, of the terrifying nature of it. Lord, that it would change us. It would change our prayer lives. It would change our urgency of the gospel. Um, it would change our sense of, of the amazing, uh, just the amazing glory of the gospel, uh, the reality that being justified by, by faith, we are saved from the wrath of God. And Lord, what a as we look at these things, what an amazing thought, um, Lord, that as the wicked are destroyed, um, we will not experience uh, their condemnation, um, Lord, because Jesus did for us. And Lord, we will enjoy, um, as Jesus says, the joy of, of our master. And so, Lord, help us to remember these things and give us, give us minds to absorb these things this morning. Lord, it's a beautiful season. It's a joy-filled day with uh, Friendsgiving. And so, Lord, it can be hard to even focus in on something so dreadful. Um, but, Lord, we know that it's not dreadful in, dreadful in some sense that um, it is not necessary. Lord, um, you don't punish because you want to. You punish because you have to. Um, you're a God who is just through and through, a God who is righteous. Um, foundation of your throne is righteousness and justice. And so, Lord, again, we, we just pray you give us minds to take in these things this morning, to take it to heart.
In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, we have looked, for, some, for you guys who haven't been here, we've been looking at this doctrine now for a few weeks. Um, I don't think in the history of our church we've ever taken time to really zero in on it and look at different aspects of it. One of the main reasons that I've chose to do it is, number one, we haven't done it in terms of really a, a, a con- concentrated focus on it for a season. But also there's another um, really formidable opponent of the view that's become pretty common in the culture, um, in the quote-unquote evangelical culture, and that is the teaching of conditional immortality or annihilationism. It's more of a, it's a, it's a fancier version of, of annihilationism, but conditional immortality. Um, the basic gist, I didn't have this definition down, but for, for those who may not know, let me see if I can pull it up here. Um, I could just spout it right off, but start with definitions so that I don't booger things up. Um, Let's see. Wow, I have a lot. Okay, let's see. Um, Yeah, so conditionalism or conditional immortality states that only the righteous have immortality and the wicked do not. Therefore, the wicked will not exist forever. Therefore, they are not punished forever or suffer forever. Consequently, God will punish the wicked with capital punishment, perhaps in some sort of indefinite time after a period of suffering. They vary in how they view that. Could be minutes, could be hours, could be years. But regardless, one day, according to conditionalists, hell will be empty and some view um, cease to exist altogether. Many others, many people like Chris Date or Ed Fudge would only allow a few hours from what I've heard in terms of the suffering experienced after uh, judgment. Um, but a lot of the guys like Edward Fudge, who's a, a, a proponent of conditional mortality, they sort of plead ignorance and don't want to give any time frame of any potential suffering. So that's a that is a, um, a prevalent view. Um, one man said the other day, and he's a, I was trying to remember who it was, um, said that um, the default position of New Testament scholarship is conditional immortality or annihilationism. Now, New Testament scholarship is a broad term. Um, we could be meaning New Testament scholarship at Duke or Princeton, but um, suffice it to say, it is the default Um, according to this man, it's the default position. Eternal conscious punishment is abhorrent to many, and so um, this is what you're dealing with. There's also uh, a whole website that has taken on a lot of traction called Rethinking Hell. The whole purpose of the website is to refute eternal conscious punishment or the traditional version of hell and present conditional immortality. I mean, that's just the whole thing. It's just nothing but a website devoted to the refutation of EC of eternal conscious punishment. So, um, and that website has a lot of traction on it. Um, and, I mean, of course, there's lots of quotes from John Stott. John Stott was an evangelical um, Anglican who believed in annihilation. Um, Jerry Stackhouse. Um, what are some other big ones um, that we might know? Richard Bauckham. Um, and then there's modern-day guys like Chris Date, who's basically a conditional immortality apologist. He, he, he pretty much does debates solely on this topic. 
So anyway, when I type in on a search engine, defending eternal conscious punishment or defending traditional doctrine of hell, what you, what you find instead of good defenses of eternal conscious punishment is um, just lots and lots of articles and arguments for conditional immortality. Just do it. It's interesting. And, um, and what you find is, um, and it's, it hasn't, this has been the case throughout church history, that um, certain doctrines in the Bible just become abhorrent to people. You know, they just become things that you, people just don't want to want to swallow. Words. They can twist the words, but ultimately they, they're doing it in the name of wanting to make God or Christianity more palatable, more believable. Um, and, uh, and, and so the doctrine of hell has suffered that as well. Of course, some of them will say that they're not. They'll say that they're, going to, they're trying to be true to the scriptures, and I'm sure they're sincere in that, but the reality is I think the scriptures are plain as day on this. All right, so we're going to pick up in Luke 16. We've already looked a lot in Matthew and Mark. We've spent um, several weeks looking at Matthew and Mark, but we're going to be lo- looking at Luke 16. I'm going to try to deal with Luke 16, Matthew 25, um, and maybe Revelation 14. And I'm just trying to go to those crucial passage, passages that deal with you said Luke 16, Matthew what? 25. 25. So Luke 16, 19 through 31. These are not going to be exhaustive. Um, these are not meant to be exhaustive exegesis or expositions of these texts. They're just going to, I'm just going to make comments as it relates to our topic. So 16, 19 through 31. But it'll pay to read it. Now there was a rich man, and I do believe this is a parable. Um, I think Jesus earlier in this chapter um, was speaking in parables. Um, and I think that starts in 16.1. But anyway, but I do think that this is parabolic. I don't think that this is an actual case. I could be wrong, but, um, and I forgot to look into that deeply, but I think it is a parable. But verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the, besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried." In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, so that he may may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment." But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. 
All right, so just some observations about this text. First is, this, this text is to teach, certainly he's, he's got in view here, the Pharisees, religious men who were lovers of money, verse 14 of chapter 16. And so Jesus wants to paint a contrast here um, between what those seek in this life and what they'll receive in the next. And so this passage is, is, is fundamentally here about the fate of those who serve money and not God. Um, the comfort of those who serve money in this life, that, that state of affairs will be reversed in the next, if that has become their God. Um, secondly, I do believe that while some or most of the features of this man's afterlife experience, the, the man that was rich, we don't know his name, Jesus doesn't give him a name, but I do think that most or some of the features of this man's afterlife experience are felt in the intermediate state. Um, so, there's a big debate on whether or not this passage is the intermediate state or is it the state after the day of judgment. And conditionalists like to say this is primarily the intermediate state because it's Hades and we know that Hades is thrown in the lake of fire later and therefore it has to be the intermediate state now. Sure. Um, and so I, I just don't think <clears throat> personally that uh, Jesus has in view the intermediate state. Um, I do think Jesus has in view the eternal state. Um, for one, in all of Jesus' teaching, he doesn't seem to be too concerned to teach on the intermediate state in terms of the intricate features of it. Um, there are glimpses, like you have like the thief on the cross, um, Jesus saying, you'll be with me today in paradise, and uh, Jesus committing his spirit to the Father, assumes that the spirit of Christ did ascend to be with the Father, um, but the vast majority of Jesus' teaching does focus on the eternal state. Whether he's exhorting to glory or warning of sin's consequences in hell, it's, it's the eternal state in view. Um, and uh, so if he is only speaking of the intermediate state here, um, in this instance we would have more instruction as to the nature of the state of the wicked than it would seem strange to me um, uh, what I'm saying is if, if this is the place where he gives lots and lots of teaching on the intermediate state, this would be different than all of his other places where he actually talks about the state of the wicked or the state of the righteous in eternity. So I think that, that, that he's primarily got in view here the eternal state. Um, another thing to say is that the man who dies here is in Hades, um, as, as the text says. In the Old Testament, it would seem that Hades is a term generally describing the place of the dead, um, whether righteous or wicked. But in the New Testament, it is certainly looked at in the negative. There's only a couple instances, um, three that I can recall. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church, Jesus says. Um, and here, the rich man in Hades. And then also you've got Hades thrown in the lake of fire um, in Revelation 20. Um, but I think it's probably just referring to the place of the dead, I'm thinking. Um, but I don't think that however you, de you, you define Hades here in specific determines whether or not Jesus is talking about intermediate state or eternal state. The man is clearly conscious. Um, that's clear. He is aware of his plight, banished from the patriarchs who are with God. No sign of this man going off in unconsciousness at some point. Again, I'm just based on what we read. Another observation is the man is to be viewed as completely whole, body and soul. Notice the language of lifting up his eyes and the cooling off of the tongue. 
And of course, this squares away with Jesus' other teaching, cutting off arms, lest your whole body go and be thrown into hell. It's, it's in keeping with all of that. The man is clearly in torment due to the fire that he is experiencing. It's important to recognize that for a conditionalist or annihilationist, they will say the fire consumes completely, reduces to ash. This is the refrain over and over. In other words, they're saying, we just believe that fire is doing what fire does in hell. And I want to say, well, let the New Testament inform you in terms of what fire actually does to the wicked. Um, over and over in the Gospels, in Matthew 18 and Matthew 5, the fire is said to breed or issue forth in weeping and gnashing of teeth, not absolute extinction or, or annihilation. Um, so it's important to let the New Testament dictate to you what this fire is actually accomplishing. Um, Preston Sprinkle, who apparently is a, a, um, a pretty popular advocate, you maybe have seen him on the Gospel Coalition, <coughs> Um, apparently he now is a conditionalist and he's supporting his view on, um, or Chris Date uses him to support his view of conditional mortality in terms of present thinkers, present evangelicals that believe this. And here's one of Preston Sprinkle's quote um, as he um, is telling us what we should make of the language of fire or flame. He says this, As in the Old Testament, fire... As in the Old Testament, fire in the New Testament judgment passages highlights destruction, not torment. The picture is one of total, final, irreversible destruction, not ongoing torment. So he says it, he says it pretty clear there about what he means. And you get a sense of what they're after. They're after total obliteration, um, not torment. Um, I have to admit... Of course, I've been studying this a lot over the last couple months. That statement blows my mind if you take the New Testament seriously. Because the language everywhere um, is not annihilation or extinction or coming to a state of unconsciousness. It is torment. I mean, the language here in Luke 16 is it's just replete with the language of agony, of torment, um, this place of torment. I mean... He actually says, where is it here in, in Luke 16? It says, um, um, I am in agony in this flame. Yeah, the, the man says, I am in agony in this flame. Yeah, and he also goes on to talk about the fact that you, you are in agony and not comforted and also this place of torment. So, Again, the language of the New Testament seems to just be clear. Um, uh, in my view, this is, this is someone who's left Scripture in favor of his personal opinion, which he feels like he has the right to impose on clear Scripture. There is just no sense in Luke 16 or in Jesus' other teachings on hell or in the book of Revelation, whenever fire is brought up, um, that, sort, that any sort of sense of absolute capital punishment or ceasing of existence is meant. Uh, again, the language is weeping, gnashing of teeth, agony, torment, forever and forever. Yeah. The language of pain in Luke 16 is pervasive. Verse 23, verse, uh, verse 23, being in torment. Verse 24, there's a cry for mercy. Not a cry for mercy from God, but a cry for mercy from Abraham regarding the agony. Um, 
there's a cry to have Lazarus drop a, uh, some water on, to, to, on his tongue to cool it off. There's the fire depicted here. And so on and so forth. So this is what we've seen elsewhere in teaching. In, this, in the teaching, the fire produces torment. It is irreversible and eternal. I don't argue with that at all. Um, it is an eternal state of affairs, but it's not the ceasing of existence that's eternal. It's the actual agony that's eternal. Um, and this is, this is seen clearly, I think, here in the language of a great chasm fixed. As Jesus says, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and none may cross over from there to us. And again, my question to any opposing view would be, why is this stated? Why would it be stated if you end up ceasing to exist that there's a great chasm fixed? doesn't seem like that that would even really be necessary. Why a chasm at all if you're just a pile of ash? Um, so the great chasm is fixed. Because it will always be, there will always be an awareness, in my view, that they are stuck outside. The language of the New Testament is always this banishment, alienation. We talk about death being separation from God, but I think the language of banishment from God, alienation from God, may even be better. But it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's this reality that you are outside. You're outside of God's goodness, out of, outside of his glory and favor. These kinds of things. Outside of anything, warmth, fellowship, hope, light, any of these things. Um, so yeah, so why fix a great chasm if you're just obliterated? I mean, one day, even if you allow for a temporary uh, state of suffering, the chasm's going to be unnecessary at some point. But the text gives no hint of that. Um, rather, what the text is trying to say, and this is sobering, brethren, one million years from now, you will still not be able to get over that chasm. That's Jesus. That's, that's what he's saying. You are fixed outside. So I think Jesus is here painting the picture of the eternal state of affairs of those who love money. Um, I don't think we need to parse this out into intermediate versus eternal. The whole tenor of the text gives no hint that this is temporary. Uh, the language of torment, agony, flame, away from Abraham is too consistent with all the language you've already heard in the Gospels for it not to be the eternal state. All right. So that's Luke 16. Any questions on that? So there's the, the intermediate versus eternal state. Mm -hmm. Why are they saying that this is the intermediate state and not the eternal state? Because the passage is so clearly dealing with conscious torment. And so after the Day of Judgment, in their view there's a capital punishment inflicted, in which case any sort of agony, torment, suffering ceases to be a possibility. So their idea is that um, it's almost like a, a purgatory in, in a sense, but it's not a purgatory in that they <clears throat> escape purgatory to go to paradise, they escape purgatory to cease to exist. Yeah, it's not reparative. I mean, purgatory would be okay. yeah, like a purging right. of But it's sin. that kind of idea, though, that there's a, a temporary spot where they go and then they cease to so mm -hmm. I, the, what I'm trying to get at here is for the orthodox view, an intermediate state is possible or it's not possible. It's, is there an intermediate state, are you saying, yeah. for the wicked? Yeah, I think there is. I think there, That's what I'm saying. I don't, I don't think that 
whatever their experience, whatever the wicked experience, if Jesus, let's just say Jesus is solely talking about the intermediate state in Luke 16, the language of what he, of what they experienced there is the same we've seen elsewhere when Jesus is teaching on the eternal state or hell. So I don't see the need of even like parsing it out. And I don't think Jesus's point really is to just be putting a, a, a defined line around the intermediate state. You get no sense of that. I think it's a way out. I think it's a way of to dilute Luke 16 from any of its import. It sounds like they're redefining what that intermediate state is. They're, they're using that principle to say that, oh, the intermediate state is actually just a temporary punishment, whereas the intermediate state is waiting for the second coming and the resurrection and judgment. Right. I think I know what you're saying there. Yeah. Yeah, well, when we die, we go to the intermediate state waiting for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just going to all end up in the same place. Right. What's... You know, whatever they're sending me to place, here they are, they're in fire, and they're, they're being punished, you know, and come judgment day, they're just going right back to where they were at. Yeah. I mean, that does, I mean, that is, that is the understanding. It's, it's whatever's true of you, whatever's true of you when you die, in terms of your stance with God, will obviously continue on. Yeah. I mean, you know, even, even before you die, if you're not in Christ... You, you are perishing now, and you will perish forever then. And you do have eternal life, and you will experience eternal life then. So, exactly. All right, Matthew 25, 41 through 46. So most of you are very familiar with this text. It's a, this one is the, uh, the uh, starting in verse 31, it's the sheep and the goats. But we'll start in verse 41. Most of you know the story. Jesus, the Son of Man, comes back in His glory, sets up His throne, all the nations are before Him, and at that point He separates the sheep from the goats. So before the judgment begins, the sheep and the goats are already known. The judgment does not yield forth in a verdict. Okay, now you're a sheep and now you're a goat based on what you've done. No, He goes ahead and He isolates them because they already are what they are. And what they've done just illustrates and verifies who they are and what they are. All right, so sheep and and goats are... Um, are separated. Then verse 41, speaking of those who are goats, he says this, verse 41, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then when they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All right, so let's look at this section here together. So verse 41, Jesus speaking to the goats here says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So there's a lot in that. One of the things that we've seen repeatedly as Jesus teaches on this is there's this constant sense that you are banished, personally banished by Jesus from him. It's just all, 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 all the time you just get the sense that Jesus is, is consigning the wicked, and here it's those who did not do certain things to, um, to, to judgment. And, um, and again, you see this, this, this pattern developing even from Genesis 3, right, where God initially 
banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, um, illustrating there that spiritual death has already happened. But here again, the final separation from God here is at the day of judgment. Jesus says, depart from me. He calls them accursed ones. They are cursed by God, finally. And he says that it's the eternal fire which they go to, which I've already demonstrated in other passages. is just that fire that lasts forever in the age to come. That fire that we just saw in Luke 16 brings agony and torment. And Jesus says here that it's the fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This is very interesting. Prepared for the devil and his angels. So, the, so again, you can look at, it, look at this stuff very academically, right, when you're trying to do polemics, but the reality is this is, this is horrific, isn't it? The wicked will be thrown, men, women, boys, and girls, will be thrown into a place where Satan and his hordes will be consigned as well. Um, that's, I mean, that's sobering. Yeah, They will be thrown in the place consigned to the devil and his angels. One of the things we learn here is that the devil did not create hell, contrary to popular opinion. Hell was created by God for the devil. Now, one of the things we see over and over in the Gospels is that hell is a place. It's not a, an ethereal state of affairs. It is a place. Jesus says they will be thrown into, um, over and over and over, cast into is, is the language. Um, Jesus says, in that place there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. So it is a place. In God's universe, God has determined there will be a place called hell. And here, this, we find out that it was originally created for the devil and his angels, God's ultimate adversary. But the devil did not create it. Hell was created by God for the devil, God's idea, to create a place where he would banish Satan forever. This shows us that the devil is not some ruler of hell. Um, He has no authority there. He is the one who will suffer there in eternal fire. What will happen to Satan there? The book of Revelation tells us, Revelation 20, I think it's verse 7. I forgot to write down the verse there, but it's chapter 20. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Again, what does the fire and brimstone yield? Torment, day and night, forever and forever. Chapter 20, verse 7. And again, think of this. This is where the wicked go. This is where people you know will go. They will be in this place with the ancient dragon, the bloodthirsty enemy of God. These people who did not give cups of water or visit those in prison, they will suffer an eternal fire with Satan. God sees the heart. God sees utterly self-absorbed creatures created in His image. People utterly self-focused, not God-focused. And this is, you know, ultimately what Satan wants. He wants us to just be wrapped up in ourselves. He wants us self-centered rather than God-centered. But these people will finally feel what it is to be self-centered. Matthew 25, 46, the other language there about the eternal state, Jesus says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal life and eternal punishment here are put side by side. Here the term eternal qualifies both the life of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked. Now conditionalists or those who are annihilationists will say, They really say two things. First, 
they say, well, the text contrasts eternal life and eternal punishment. But because eternal life is not in the sphere of eternal punishment, and life means immortality, that is living forever, therefore the wicked don't live forever there. They are therefore killed or cease to exist or destroyed into unconsciousness. Um, my question would be, um, many, many conditionalist advocates say there is a season of suffering for the wicked. I mean, some of them just can't escape that reality as they read through the New Testament. But if they say one day everyone will cease to exist at some level. But, but let's say there is a season of suffering. Let's say it's 100 years. Let's say it's 200 years. Um, my question would be, what do they call that? What, what do they call that exactly? They say that the wicked do not have immortality. That is, only the righteous are given life, and that's why they live forever, because God confers that. But they do acknowledge that the wicked can suffer for a season, but they don't want to call that immortality. Fine, I don't call it immortality. I don't need to call it immortality. But they're there. They're experiencing conscious punishment. So what do you call that? And I would argue, whatever you call that is what I would call it, but I would say that goes on forever. Whatever God has to do to confer existence to this person to suffer consciously for a season is what God does that they, so that they suffer consciously forever. Um, whatever you want to call that, um, you don't have to call it immortality. But um, so I think there they might be a little inconsistent. Whatever power God uses to keep them conscious and suffering punishment for a season is the same power that will be expended forever. So that w- that's my question. The other thing that they would say, and I'll have a response to this as well. Eternal punishment here just means the consequences or the result of the punishment is eternal. Um, but the wicked in, are in fact obliterated into unconsciousness or capitally punished. And that is eternal. The death they experience there, that is permanent, in other words. They say that the wicked, again, they can suffer for a time, but then they are executed. Capital punishment style, and that is a fixed, irreversible state. Um, so in my view, it'd be better to, let me, let me see how to put this. Um, I'm trying to make sense out of my notes here. So in my view, (laughs) my, yeah, I think all I'm trying to say here is that it doesn't make any sense to say eternal punishment if in fact those that are there are not eternally punished. In other words, you have to be conscious to be punished. So I think it's a distortion to the scriptures to say you're not. In other words, if, if you're going to say, you know, this person is punished, say they're punished, and, and if that means capital punishment, great. But when you put the qualifier of eternal next to it, they no longer are punished if they're not aware of it. <laughs> right? It doesn't make any sense. Um. And, and furthermore, when you read the New Testament, you find different places in the New Testament where the wicked will want to be annihilated, right? I mean, don't you have these places where the rock they want to cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them, hide them in caves and, and holes in the ground so that they can be annihilated? Yeah, I mean, that's what they want. This, this tells you a lot about what, what human beings think, think is worse, or I should say what is better. Yeah, what is better is, is being annihilated. If God is your enemy, 
annihilation is good news. Annihilation still gives you a glimmer of hope that you will not suffer that forever. And again, you talk to people, you listen to those Living Waters videos where Ray Comfort is there talking to people about their soul and, and you know, he says, what do you think happens after you die? A lot of times they'll just say, I just turn to dust. And that's why I want to, you know, live all I can in this life, live it up, right? They're not too bothered with it. Now, we know that they fear death. But at the same time, they're resigned to be obliterated and just return to dust. They don't have a big deal with that. What they would scoff at, and what many have scoffed at, is the reality that God will consign you a place to be tormented forever. Then they will find out. Yeah. Then they will know for sure. Yeah. So, ultimately, conditional mortality and annihilation, it does give a sense of, of hope. At some level. Now they'll say, well, we don't say that. Well, that's fine. But in Scripture, you do have folks wanting that. And sad reality, but the just reality, is that the request to be crushed by rocks and mountains, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, that request will not be granted. And when you transfer the logic of... It's, it's not eternal punishment. It's the consequences of the punishment are eternal. When you, when you take that logic, that it's the consequences of the punishment that et- that's eternal, and you transfer that to the experience of the righteous in this passage, it becomes sort of nonsensical. No one would say that the consequences of the life in glory become eternal. As if some experience of life in glory will somehow yield or issue forth an eternal state of affairs. No, eternal is the adjective describing both the life and the punishment. That is, the eternal life means that life that is eternal or never-ending. In other words, from the beginning stages of the experience of glory, the righteous experience in full eternal life. And this is irreversible. And from the beginning stages of the experience of the wicked in hell the wicked will experience, in full, eternal punishment. And this is forever and certainly irreversible. The punishment of the wicked doesn't become eternal once the execution has taken place. This is what I'm saying. It is eternal from the minute they are banished. I think that's a really important point, that the punishment of the wicked does not become eternal or permanent once the execution has taken place. It is eternal from the minute they are there. Across their consciousness will be written these words, or this word, eternal, forever. It is conscious existence and continual punishment. It's the opposite of temporary. Paul gives us a comparison in 2 Corinthians 4, of not looking at things that are temporary, but things that are eternal. And there, clearly, it's the contrast of the things that are passing away versus things that last. The idea of eternal, or everlasting, that Jesus is speaking of for the righteous, is, and for the wicked, is an everlasting state of affairs. Um, Al Mohler points out a popular Anglican minister in the 1900s named Frederick Maurice. He was a he he was a even he was a he was Anglican. He became the father of the social the socialist movement and the social something movement. Um, I can't remember the exact phrase. I didn't write it down. 
But he was he became appalled at the traditional understanding of hell. He couldn't he couldn't escape the fact that the scriptures do hold out some sort of judgment for the wicked. But he got he got appalled at the traditional understanding of hell, which many did during the Victorian era era and the 1900s, and then certainly on with liberalism. Um, but um, Moeller observed that uh, Maurice wrote a book called Eternal Life and Eternal Death. And in this book, Maurice argued that eternal death is a more acceptable teaching, the language of eternal death is a more acceptable teaching than eternal punishment. He did not like the language of eternal punishment. So he writes a book saying that we should drop that, use eternal death instead, because they want to say death is the ceasing of existence. And this is what we should use. This is better. But I just think it's interesting. It's interesting for two reasons. Number one, he knew how to interpret eternal punishment. <laughs> he knows what Jesus means. Um, or he knows what that means when eternal punishment is stated. Um, he was an advocate, like I said, for a form of conditional immortality in which he argued that only the righteous were given immortality and therefore the wicked would just cease to exist because they were not immortal. But one does not have to be said to have immortality to exist forever, right? Think of the devil and his angels and all the wicked, you know, Jesus talks about being punished forever. And the other thing that's interesting is that rather than adopt the plain reading of Scripture that says eternal punishment, he comes up with his own phrase, eternal death. Again, not to elucidate Scripture, which I wouldn't have a problem people saying eternal death, as they elucidate scripture, right? But he doesn't do it to elucidate scripture, but to replace scripture. And you can't do that. You can't say eternal death should replace eternal punishment, Jesus. You can't do that. They're all over the map on degrees of punishment. They're all over the map. I would think that Well, they would, they would say that eternal means non-ending or never-ending. That's not so much the issue. They would say the language of destruction or punishment or death strongly teaches, I would say, I was going to say implies, but they, don't, they think it teaches at some point a ceasing of existence. They, I mean, over and over they just say destroy means destroy. Right? They say that over and over. Destroy means destroy. And I'm like, well, I mean, you're straining it to mean, you know, non-existence or unconsciousness or something like that. One of the lexicons I read was good on this, on the word destroy for apolemy. They said it's not a, it is, it is, utter, it is utter loss and ruin, not of being, but of all well-being. Mm. And I think that that really captures it. Because the language of Apollomai is, it can be regarded, you know, the, the wineskins are, are wasted, the sun is lost and perish. The, um, the demons actually in two different places, in one gospel it says, have you come to destroy us? And the other gospel it says, have you come to torment us? So you put those together and you get one filling out the color of the other. So, yeah, so I don't, they, they um, that's how they, they're, they're, in other words, their definition of eternity doesn't necessarily control the afterlife as much. But, yeah. Yeah, Adam? Yeah, even sometimes they don't talk about how death in life is also going to 
We want it softer. Our sin wants it softer. We just don't, we, we don't like to think about it for very long, and I get it. You know, it's like some people asking all these different questions about who's going to hell and this and that, and what do you do with children, and what do you do with this? I mean, the reality is, let's just back up and just, just say flat out, the issue is eternity. I mean, it is eternal. So it's, well, I don't mean so much plain and simple. I mean, that's what you got to swallow. I don't care if you're Hitler. We're still talking about eternity. He's never getting out. I know he did a horror. I mean, atrocious, horrible things you can't even talk about, right? But eternity. So it's yeah, it's a lot to swallow. But the reality is, are you going to submit to what the Lord Jesus said, and let your view of the holiness of God be adjusted in your mind based on that, and the heinousness of sin based on that, or not? And I think that if you don't, then you are aligning yourself with the original lie from the serpent. You will not die. You will not die. You will not die in the sense that the Bible says you'll die. That's what's undergirding conditional immortality, in my view, is that you won't really die. They'll say, no, you have, this is the only view that teaches that you really will die. And I'll be like, well, if the Bible actually teaches the second death is eternal conscious punishment, then they really won't die. Right? They'll be extinguished. And that's not the essence of death. To your point, this is so important. Like, if you don't remember anything else, because I know I've said a lot, and some of it very jumbled. Just remember this. Life and death are defined in relationship to God, biblically. Not with biological categories. Life is knowing God and Jesus Christ, and death is not. And it's, and it's, and it's a conscious awareness of being excluded from the life of God. That is the essence of death. And that's why the day they ate of it, they did die. They really did die that day. They were still there, but completely alienated from the life they once knew. Yeah, spiritually they were dead. And then everything else plays out from that. And we see, that's why in the Revelation, it's called the second death. I mean, it is called death. That's our definition. So, anyway, um, we haven't dealt with Paul or John yet. I'll debate on whether or not to do that. This is like our fourth week. So, um, yeah, so anyway, but this is, this is critical, brethren, seriously. I, I just, I feel like if you don't have this firmly tucked in your mind and heart, the gospel will, will be diluted, and your view of God's holiness will be diluted, your sense of sin will be diluted. Um, motivations to holiness <laughs> will even be diluted somewhat. Again, your sin is looking for a way out. It's just looking for it. And if you can give it a little, just something, and I think that's why they're saying fall on us rocks. All right, well, all right, let me pray. Father, we, we come to you this morning, and uh, Lord, what a sobering topic it always is. Um, but Lord, we're so thankful for our great salvation. Now having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
oh, we're just so thankful that you brought peace where there was enmity. Um, we're so thankful for that. Lord, we don't understand all of it, but we understand that it's real and true. Lord, you coming down into this world, taking on the form of a, of a man and living among us, um, and then being beaten by men, suffering at the hands of men, being crucified at the hands of men, bearing the wrath of God in your own body as a man on the tree, as the God-man. Lord, all these things show that it's real. Whatever you think about sin, it's real. Death is real. Consequences are real. You are real. And Lord, our salvation is real. Um, the glorious reality that we are righteous before you because of Christ is real. Oh, just praise you for that. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. Thank you the fact that we are not condemned along with the world. Um, Lord, and help this never to produce in us any sort of pride or any sort of sneering or anything like that, Lord, but just, just, just deep concern and humility um, at the reality that most of the world will experience what we've talked about this morning. But Lord, just compel us from your love and from this reality of judgment um, to, to call people to you that they might flee the wrath to come and find refuge in the sun. Um, so Lord, just, just please, just please help us. Help us to just never forget that. Our, our sin wants to just get, get sleepy on these matters, uh, or our, our, our flesh wants to get sleepy on these matters and just, um, you know, just put them off into the future somewhere um, and not current in our thinking. Lord, help our, our thinking to be always presently thinking on this reality that um, there is a day of judgment. And, um, and Lord, we must live in light of it. Um, Lord, you don't want us to live lives that are paralyzed. Um, but Lord Jesus, as we look at you, um, we see that you were just, uh, well, you told us you're about your father's business. Help us to be about your business in this life. Um, certainly with joy, certainly with love, and, uh, and just immense gratitude. Um, and Lord, as we gather to sing to you this morning as our brother brings before us what you're doing in the world and through Bible translation, Lord, just pray your spirit would fall on us and just give us more and more encouragement um, in you for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.